BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We've been naming tropical systems since the late 1940s, and the Weather Channel has been naming winter storms in the United States since 2012, while other nations have been naming storm systems for over a decade. But what about heat waves? The point of naming storm systems is to raise awareness, preparedness, and prevent the loss of life and property. And extreme heat is the deadliest weather-related killer in the United States, taking more lives on average each year than hurricanes and tornadoes combined. Joining us today is Kurt Schickman, Director of Extreme Heat Initiatives at the Adrian Arst Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center to talk about bringing more awareness to deadly heat and how it affects the country. Kurt, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Dr. Shepard. Thanks for having me. Well, this is really uh, an important and timely conversation, particularly given the extreme heat that we've seen, not only in our country, but around the world. I mean, it just isn't supposed to be 104 degrees in London. Uh, and, and that's exactly what we've seen this year. Uh, we've seen heat in the Pacific Northwest and they're not acclimatized. They don't have the resiliency. They don't have air conditioning in some cases in their homes. So this is just a timely topic in general. Before we get into this topic, there's a there's a question I ask every Weather Geeks guest. Uh, I don't know if it applies here. Uh, How did you become a Weather Geek or are you a heat geek or are you a resiliency geek? Well, I've been working on this issue of, of heat uh, for about uh, 13 years now, and I came to it through uh, the built environment and working on energy efficiency and realizing that some of the choices we make and how we build our cities and our buildings uh, have a huge impact on how people experience the weather where they live. Uh, I've always been a geek of many sorts. Uh, weather is one of the areas that you can deeply geek out in. And so it was a natural fit for me. Uh, one of the things I really like about it, honestly, is just, just with heat and weather generally, just how much it touches our lives. Every human system, every urban system is affected by heat and by weather. Uh, and it's not always the top of mind as, as, as to, you know, what the what the challenge or the opportunities it creates. And so it's a really rich space to meet other disciplines, other experts and other, uh, you know, and to engage uh, through this lens. So for me, that's really the excitement of it. I, I would never call myself a heat expert. I don't think there is such a thing in this space just because there's so many different things you have to be expert in uh, to be uh, uh, to work effectively in this space. And I think that's one of the exciting things about it for me is there's always something new to learn and a new perspective to, to gain. I want to give you a little bit of uh, Kurt's background and I'll give you more of it throughout the podcast. He's the director of the Extreme Heat Initiatives at the Adrian Arst Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center. Uh, he's a leading uh, an exp- he's leading an effort to expand the center's global work to protect people and livelihoods from growing risks and impacts of climate driven heat. Uh, he's been uh, engaged in this at the center since October of 2021. Uh, he comes to the center from the Global Cool Cities Alliance, where he was the executive director and is the former director of research for the energy and climate team at the United Nations Foundation. Uh, I'll I'll give you a little bit more of Kurt's background as we go forward. But again, 
as typical of the podcast, and I hope it's one of the reasons you continue to tune in, we're getting the right people to talk about these topics. These are the people that clearly are in the know on these topics. Now, one of the things with heat, Kurt, that I recently went on a rant about on social media on a tweet is I said, we've got to stop covering heat by showing images of kids frolicking around with ice cream cones and in water fountains and so forth. I mean, that's one narrative on heat that the media is often used, but talk to us about this notion in a, that heat is a, one of the deadliest weather killers that we know. Well, I saw that tweet and was just jumping up and down because I, I completely agree with you on, on, on how we, we cover this issue. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, so as I, as I mentioned just a minute ago, I mean, heat is uh, a silent killer and it touches just about every aspect of our lives, even if we don't know it. So uh, it, it, on an average year, uh, heat disasters kill more people than other natural disasters combined in the U.S. and, and globally. Uh, it is uh, beyond the, the worst health outcome, which is death. It, uh, it exacerbates existing mental health issues. Uh, it, it, it additional challenges for people that are dealing with addiction, uh, recovery, and, and, and going through that process just because of the way those, those uh, uh, drugs affect their, their ability to stay hydrated, for example. Uh, it affects people with diabetes, with renal disease, with cardiopulmonary disease. It affects elderly. It affects the youth. It affects children who aren't born yet. Uh, it, it really across the board. And when we look even at, uh, we talk about vulnerable populations, we often are talking about the elderly or the sick, uh, as I just did. But if you look at the science on this, when we see extremely hot days, the engagement with emergency departments or emergency room visits, they're up across the board. Healthy people in their late 20s, 30s, and 40s are engaging with emergency departments on hot days. Uh, and that's in part due to a lack of awareness. That's part due to just the oppressive nature of heat. And it's also due to the fact that some people can't get out of the heat. Uh, and that's not necessarily tied to a, a pre-existing condition or to an age group. And so this really is across the board, a challenge uh, that we face. And, and not only that, I would say it's not just how it affects human health as a person, but also the infrastructure that delivers health to people. So the ability, if you're, if you're for example, we've seen, you know, melted runways in, in London this year at Luton Airport. We've seen melted roadways in India, Pakistan, Australia, in Texas. You know, that, that not only affects uh, people's lives, daily lives, it also affects the ability to deliver health care and to get people into the systems. It affects how many people are, are loading uh, into a health clinic or into an emergency department and lower and creating stress on the cl clinicians themselves. So th it really is across the board, just a challenge that uh, isn't well uh, under it's well understood in the sense that we know when it's hot. But I don't think we've really internalized just how dangerous these days can be. And, and that's part of what our work is, is just to really help to highlight that and, and to uh, illuminate ways that practical ways that people can keep themselves safe today. And then thinking about those sort of transformative things that we need to do to our cities and our, our behaviors that will keep us safe and thriving in a, in a warming world uh, over time. Talking with Kirk Schickman about eventually the topic of naming heat waves. And I want to set that up right now. I'm I'm, I'm from the meteorology community, um, and we think quite a bit about messaging extreme weather hazards. There's been discussion about whether the Saffir-Simpson scale is still appropriate, appropriate for hurricanes because it's really just a wind scale and rainfall and flooding, excuse me, are, are, are deadly aspects of hurricanes as well. There have been discussions about whether we need some type of flood index. Heat 
as we know, extreme temperature is really a deadly and sometimes silent killer. There's been controversy about naming things. The Weather Channel, who powers this podcast, um, they took some heat from some corners for naming winter storms. Oh, why are you doing that? There are too many storms. And I think there were some of the, the discussion around it was certainly valid. I mean, they're, they're continuing to do it and, and have prospered with it. So, I mean, I think a lot of that criticism has died down. And I mean, there are European countries that were doing it for a while. You're talking about, or at least in this camp, that's discussing naming heat. How, how do we even do that? Talk to us a little bit about what you're up to with that. Well, it's a great question. So I, and you raise important points. So what is the metric upon which we, we, we build these, these types of warning systems? Right now for heat, uh, almost exclusively we're using uh, weather conditions, mostly just high temperature during the day. Sometimes you'll see humidity, humidex or, or wet bulb glow temperature thrown in there for a, a heat measurement. Uh, and those are, those are useful. One thing we're trying to do is to take that to the next level, which is what is what are those weather conditions really mean for the human condition? How do we start to tie the weather conditions we have seen or we're going to see through the forecast to um, the lived experience of people? And we're doing that through looking at the health outcomes that historic weather conditions in specific places have meant. So looking at maximum daily temperature, nighttime temperature, so you have an average over the course of daytime and nighttime humidity, wind speed, other factors that really uh, affect how people experience the weather themselves. And comparing that to, in our case, looking at all-cause mortality by day. And we can do that in the U.S. back you know, many decades, in some cases, 50 plus years. Uh, and to be able to, to assess what those weather conditions will mean, not just on that day, but how the previous 30 days weather will uh, plays into how people will uh, uh, be affected by that, that that particular day. So the acclimatization effect, let's say. Uh, and that allows us to tie those weather conditions to the health outcome in a fairly granular way. And in our case, looking at uh, whether there'll be increases in expected mortality on a given day across all causes. Uh, I think that's really important, not just for a warning around heat, but just all of our activities on heat. It's a very challenging thing to build metrics around. Uh, and so tying it as close to we can to the human impact is, I think, a, a really broad and equitable way to think about all the different things we're doing, whether it be early warning, whether it be changes to our built environment, whether it's planting more trees. Uh, there are many different ways we can measure that. But at the end of the day, all these things are in service of a better human existence. And so the metrics we're looking at are really tied as closely as we can to, to that to that end what will you know, a performance indicator, if you will. So th that's that's how we've approached this challenge. Um, I uh, completely understand and agree that there's a lot that needs to go into how this gets rolled out on a global scale. We're really looking at pilots right now. We're doing six pilots around the world uh, on this system. And what, what it does is it doesn't just name heat waves. It actually does a lot more. So it does that uh, locally focused um, uh, health con connection to human health to the weather. It then allows us to categorize each individual day in a forecast. So we look at typically a five-day forecast, and we can look out at those days and say, this these conditions that the weather service is, is forecasting has traditionally meant this type of uh, impact in the community. And so for some days, that may mean we don't need to worry about an advisory. On other days, it might mean this is the kind of storm, this is the kind of event or a day that you would tell your grandkids about. Right now, we don't really have that ability to add those gradations into that, right? So 
If it's above, say, 95 degrees or the 95th percentile of typical day, we, we issue a warning. That doesn't tell you when you've got these catastrophic uh, days that require a different response. And so this system, before you even get into the naming of a storm, allows you to take each individual day and scale the response, the messaging that goes out to people, the communities you're reaching out to, of the authority's ability to to pre to prepare and sort of pre-place assets to help, to help respond to these heat waves. It allows us to do that with more urgency on hotter days than maybe we can now. And I would, in that way, equate it to what we do with hurricanes. When you have a category one hurricane, there's a certain set of actions you might take. It may not include mandatory evacuations, for example. Uh, but if you are facing a category five hurricane, that may trigger a whole different set of actions that are appropriate and commensurate to the type of danger that people are facing. We, we're piloting this system to see, to see whether we can allow that to happen for heat because heat's killing more people than, than hurricanes. Uh, it's affecting more people's lives uh, than other natural disasters. And so we think there should be a warning system that, that, that uh, recognizes that danger and, 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 you know, and allows us to respond appropriately and save lives. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Kirk Schickman. And we're talking about a topic that's increasingly important. It is what it is, y'all. We're in a new normal climate system. The peer-reviewed literature uh, clearly indicates, and I've been a co-author on a couple of National Academy reports in this space, that heat waves, the intensity and frequency of them are changing. They have changed. It's not future tense. The DNA of climate change is in this generation of heat waves. Uh, We look at the Portland Pacific Northwest heat wave in 2021. There are studies out that say that there was a a hundred time more likelihood of that scale of event because of climate change. So this is an important discussion. And we're talking with Kirk Schickman. Give you a little bit more of his background. I mean, he clearly knows his stuff. You know, Kurt launched the Global Cool Cities Alliance in 2011 uh, and built it into a global network of over 70 cities focused on passive cooling solutions uh, to combat urban heat. Uh, he has led projects for the World Bank, U.S. Department of Energy, Asia Pacific Economic Corporation, and the Clean Energy Ministerial. He also helped develop the Million Cool Roofs Challenge, and I want to hear about some of these things later as well. But I want to circle back to our discussion because you were talking about the sort of set of indicators that you're piloting in six places around the world. And so that kind of sets the context and framework for sort of elevating heat to a point where there are actionable items based on the sort of differentiation of potential based on the forecast. So then we get to the naming and is what's the, so if you have this sort of set of metrics or if you have these indicators or scale even, what do you view the importance of the naming to be and how do you decide the names? 
Sure. So as with all of the pilots, so let me back up and say, of the six pilots, we're testing different messages. The, the, the core system is the same in each of the six pilots, uh, but the way it's being messaged and the way it's being operated is different in each pilot. So what we're really trying to do here is understand what's the right approach for how this can roll out, because the system is only as good as the, what you message from it, right? So, so we're really looking at how that's uh, these different uh, modes of delivering the messages that the system provides. Uh, and in, in Seville, Spain, we're, we're including a naming uh, uh, convention as well. So that naming convention was actually developed in partnership with the C City Council of Seville, uh, the University of Seville, and, and other experts locally. And they chose uh, five names, uh, uh, starting with the end of the alphabet, alternating between male and female, and, and typically not names that are that are common. I think they, they wanted to avoid uh, people feeling put upon with a you know a heat wave Jorge, for example. Uh, so they've they've chosen names that are slightly unusual that, that really uh, will pop locally uh, for, for, for them. Uh, so it really is a local decision in the pilots. I think as we get to a bigger stage, that's a, a different. There'll be a different uh, a, a different way to approach that. Uh, so the way it works, as I as I mentioned, we're we're grabbing the five day forecast every 15 minutes from AEMET, which is the Spanish National Weather Service. Looks local to uh, the, the, the broader sort of Seville metro area. So it's smaller than Andalusia, the state, uh, but larger than the city limits. Uh, and what we're doing is every 15 minutes, we're grabbing that forecast data, looking out five days, applying this algorithm that identifies whether there's any excess heat days uh, or, and then whether those excess heat days will have any impact on excess uh, uh, mortality and, and negative health outcomes. When we start this, and there, there's there's essentially four categories of, of, that we're looking at. Category, there's no advisory at all. So you have a beautiful sunny summer day that's, you know, cools off at night and is not too hot and we're not expecting any challenges. So that's that's the kind of days you want to see every day. Uh, that's, what your, that's what your tourism board wants to see every day. Uh, category zero, uh, is a, a an advisory that makes sure that we're connected to a weather-only um, warning from the weather service. So there's never a gap in the pilot process between what the weather service is calling on a weather-only basis and what our system is calling. In practical terms, it doesn't matter because the weather the weather service is running the, with this system in parallel with us. Uh, but we wanted to make sure there was no gap in the warning to create confusion. Category one, two, and three are really where you get into more dangerous days. And, and those thresholds are set roughly on uh, when you have an, uh, an elevated danger day, 60% of those elevated danger days will fall into category one, roughly, in a, in a location. About 30% will fall into category two, and about 10% will fall into category three. So in the case of Seville, we're looking at a category one day is somewhere around, say, a 10 to 20% increase in, in all-cause mortality is expected. Category two is between 20 and 30, and category three is 30 plus. That's different by location. That's that's determined by the local health impacts that local weather causes. But so just from this example, we'll focus on Seville. When we see multiple category two and three days uh, coming, so first of all, the warning can go out on any of those category one, two, or three days, even if the next day after it is a calm, easy, nice day. Those warnings will go out saying, hey, this is a dangerous day. This is a day to drink. If you're drinking five glasses of water today, you should drink eight glasses of water. If you can stay in the shade, stay in the shade. If you can stay somewhere cool, go somewhere cool. Call your relatives, call your family, call your friends, check on your neighbors. 
it's those types of practical advice that can go out without a name and and it does where the name comes in is when we start to see three days of these category two and three days that means it's not cooling off at night people are not getting reset their bodies aren't resetting and then they're facing another you know extremely hot humid day uh that's dangerous and that's going to happen over and over we could see at least for three days that's when we would make a recommendation and it's automatic in the system, but it makes a recommendation to the city council to say, or the, the in this case, whatever authority is going to make the uh, make the announcement. In this case, it's the city council in partnership with the weather service, and to put a name on that. And the reason for that is to really underscore for the public this is a dangerous day. When those names get attached, the media coverage goes up, people start talking about it, uh, they start to really pay attention, and that's critical because this is giving people a couple of days notice to get water, to, to prepare themselves. Uh, it's giving businesses a few days notice to take appropriate actions to allow outdoor workers to maybe work at different times of the day or to take a day off because it's too hot and too dangerous for them to work. It allows the, the, the council to take those really extra preparatory and response actions that, that are needed on those really dangerous type events. So, that, so that's the idea around the name in the lead up to a heat wave. But the name also matters and I hate to use this word branding, but the branding piece is really important to this after the fact. When we think about here we are, you know, almost 20 years after Hurricane Katrina. If I say Katrina, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's not just the storm. It's all of the all of the social and economic and, and equitable and environmental justice issues that were tied to that. It's all of the response that we as a country made. Uh, you know, to address some of the challenges that occurred in the response to Katrina. All of that is encompassed in that name. And we don't have that as a galvanizing force for heat. And, and yet we saw 1,100 people die in the Pacific Northwest on both sides of the border. You know, and yet we were seeing looks like close to 30, more than 30,000 people in Europe uh, dying because of this extended heat wave across Europe. So it's clear we need that kind of, of, branding or, or, or identity, identity to these so that we can really uh, speak and, and act clearly and unambiguously to address the gaps that we have in, in, in addressing heat, both uh, you know, in the lead up to a heat wave and also long term in the way we, the way we live and build our, our, our cities. And, you know, and just listening to you, you're, you're throwing out numbers like 1,100 dead, 30,000 dead. Those numbers, you, you can add up hurricane seasons for several years and not necessarily approach those types of numbers. And so it really speaks to this idea of elevating the heat uh, risk. Again, we're talking with Kurt Schickman. He also is the lead author of Primer, Primer for Cool Cities, Reducing Excessive Urban Heat a publication of the Energy Sector Management Program and the Global Platform for Sustainable Cities uh, Practices at the World Bank. And he holds an MA from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and a Bachelor of Arts from Wake Forest University. So uh, again, it's really just an honor to have um, Kurt on the show. I wanted to, you know, you touched on this a little bit and I appreciate that because one of the criticisms I've heard of some naming schemes is, well, with hurricanes, for example, they're sort of very isolated, short-lived, relatively short-lived systems, uh, whereas a heat wave could be sustained for weeks. And so I think that really, I think you have clarified for me at least how you go about 
really sort of framing this sort of indexing of these storms and the naming of the storms. Is there any concern about uh, fatigue if you're sort of naming heat events too often, or uh, is the system constructed in such a way that it really is going to only happen for the most extreme events? So that's a great question. And I want to underscore that what we're doing here is not rolling out a global system. We're piloting. We're, we're, we're checking things out. We're trying, we're trying something new. Um, you know, I think the, the criticisms of naming are understood. I, I, I think there does need to be connections to community that, of experts that, that work on this. But, the, but our, our idea was let's go out and let's try this in a pilot format. Let's bring those folks to the table. We're going to have good data and good experiences to share on the process and on the outcomes that will help advance this conversation. This is not the end state that we're looking at. So I, I say all that uh, because I think what we're going to see after these pilots is some things that went well and how we named it and some things that will need to change. This is a part of a process that all scientific endeavors go through um, uh, that, that, uh, that we're at the beginning of. I think it was critically important that this gets started. Uh, and so we're very excited to be the ones to, to do that. Um, but it may be that there are other systems that are work better in different places. Uh, that's we're very open to that. I think it was very important for us to catalyze not just the conversation around this, but to, to actually start to put some data and experiences that, that can start to address some of the concerns uh, that, that have been raised by the by the broader expert community. And so, so that's really where we are with this right now. I would say that um, if you look at the Seville example, because again, of the of the six pilots, only Seville is doing naming. Um, We've named one heat wave uh, this summer. It has been a, an incredibly hot summer. It's gotten a lot of attention in Spain and throughout Europe. There's been only one event that, that triggered a, a name. Uh, and so I think with that, there's I, I think that's indicating to me that we're being judicious in when we name heat waves. I think one of the things I'm interested to see is when do you stop naming a heat wave? So we, we've, we've made some decisions in the pilot to say, well, if you have two straight days of no advisory, uh, then call that the end of a heat wave. One of the things we're investigating is, you know, we've really focused on when we can clearly see that the next three days or the next, in the next five days, there are three days that we know are going to be very hot. Let's put a name on that. We don't actually do that with hurricanes. We start to name them well before we see their full potential. And so there may be uh, an adjustment that needs to be made that names heat waves a little bit earlier to, to account for the fact that to, to give more lead lead up time. So these are all the types of questions we're asking and we'll be assessing from these pilots. So I don't think we have the final answer here, but I think what I'm excited about is that we'll actually have some information to start to make informed decisions about what's gonna make sense for naming heat waves, just like we do for a, a other other events. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, 
and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Kurt Schickman about a fascinating topic. And you just mentioned this idea of perhaps even uh, augmenting or modifying the system some. And I, I know the Hurricane Center has recently started uh, something called potential tropical cyclones, where the storm may not meet the criteria of a tropical storm or a hurricane yet, but it's something that they want to start issuing guidance on and so forth. So it sounds very uh, similar to what you're uh, talking about. So let's fast forward now. You are past the prototype stage, the sixth prototype stage. Ideally, all goes well. You learn what you need to learn. What is what are the next steps? To me, the next step is uh, is twofold. One, these are municipal sort of city scale pilots. I think I'd like to start to see you know engagement with the with the various met services around the world, so we can start to think about this at a scale and what that looks like. Uh, but ultimately, what this what this leads to, let's as you say, let let's take the best case scenario and everything is amazing. We have great data to share. This then needs to flow. We need to bring this and we're excited to bring this to the Met services around the world, to the, the community of experts to work with us to expand on this, to get to build the database and to really start in earnest these conversations around what a, what a categorization and naming system might look like. But actually, most importantly, to advance the conversation and the work on health based uh, warning systems for heat. I think that is the core to all of this. Whether we decide to name, I think there's a lot of value in that. But that the real benefit, I think, is is that uh, the health outcomes uh, between health outcomes and weather, and then what we can do with that. And so that's really, I think, the ultimate goal for me is to be able to take good, uh, solid data to the community of experts and let them start to work with it uh, and work with us to move this forward um, at a faster pace than it is now. I mean, this is heat is an urgent issue. We're, as you mentioned at the top, we're not talking about a future problem. We're talking about a problem that we're living in. We're sitting in today. And it's going uh, to worsen. Literally today. Yeah, it will worsen. And will worsen. As I've heard uh, someone say eloquently, and I, I apologize, I can't recall who actually said this first, but we're living in the coolest summer uh, that, we'll, that we'll know going forward. Uh, and that's likely to be true. Uh, so there's a real urgency to action on heat. Uh, and so we're trying to act with that urgency, but to have this happen at scale, there needs to be a, a connection with the broader expert community and the Met services. And we're very excited to be able to take them something uh, that's useful and tangible to uh, to have those conversations and those dialogues and action on. You know, you said something earlier in the podcast that resonated with me in, in terms of the sort of indicators of severity in these various pilot locations will be very much location dependent. Uh, depending on the sort of various conditions there, who lives there from vulnerable population. That's actually a novel concept, because if you think about a hurricane warning, the Saffir Simpson scale, a category two storm is a category two storm, no matter where it hits. But honestly, a cat one storm or even a tropical storm could have category two impacts if it's hitting a, an extremely vulnerable location or a place with extremely vulnerable inhabitants. And that's something that I've done in my own work, looking at these sort of 
climate vulnerable or extreme weather vulnerable regions doesn't even take a big cat three storm to cause significant problems for some communities. And so I really like this idea uh, that it's, uh, you know, the impact is scaled to by location. I think that's something we can learn for for other extreme weather warnings as well uh, as uh, you know, that, that is that something that you worked on in, with stakeholders and practitioners in terms of thinking about that? Absolutely. I mean, one of the insidious and unique things about heat is how localized its effects are. So as you, you were describing, a, a, you know, a, 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 a category one storm that's affecting that will affect people differently in a region uh, because of their, their living conditions and, and, and other factors. But generally, you're experiencing the same. It, it's a very similar experience. My house may, you know, may be heavily affected by a tornado, just like my neighbor's house is right. Heat is almost a house by house impact. So I live in Washington, DC. If it's 95 degrees out, I have a job where I can stay inside. I can run my air conditioner. My neighbor doesn't have air conditioning. So her experience of the same temperature is extremely different than mine. And so that makes it even more important that we get these impacts as localized as we can. So in the case of our pilots, we have one city because it's a coastal city uh, with mountains where we have actually three different algorithms uh, that, that run. So we can actually dial in the conditions in one part of the city versus other parts because they're so different, not just in terms of the climate and the way the weather affects them, but also in terms of just the, the, the populations and how their exposure to heat affects their health. Um, now, I think we're not going to do this block by block, obviously. There has to be some, you know, at, at some point the scale has to be, you have to get to some level of scale. But this idea of, of you know, high resolution warnings are, are really important. There, there are groups that, that we're working with uh, globally that have applied this in other, uh, uh, other uh, natural disasters where the messaging goes out that's so hyper-focused. It's saying, if you have a flood, don't walk on this street at this time of day. Take this path instead. Now, these, are the ty- these are the types of warnings that are critical to help people survive. Um, and you know, I think, so that's why we've really focused on making this as granular as possible so we can get as close to people's lived experiences with this as we can to help help protect them. And also, frankly, to make those warnings more uh, actionable. If I say, you know, the East Coast of the United States is under a heat wave, uh, that may or may not trigger action for me. It's maybe too big of a spot. But if I say, you know, uh, the you know San Fernando Valley is going to face dangerously hot weather. If I live in the San Fernando Valley, that may trigger a little bit more attention to that because it's it's talking about uh, me and, and the context of my local area in a way that a broader warning may not. Uh, and so that's that is an important part of this, just because of that sort of unique uh, challenge of heat being such a local and really house by house challenge. Yeah, it's just just an amazing discussion. And what you just heard is a discussion of how we define vulnerability. Everyone's exposed to the event. Uh, Certain people have uh, varying degrees of sensitivity to the event. And then certain people have the ability to be resilient or have adaptive capacity for that event. And that was really an excellent dissertation uh, in that discussion. Kurt, where can people find out more about you, your organization, or what you're up to either on websites or any social media? That's great. So we, we have uh, our website is One Billion Resilient. That ties to our goal to reach a billion people with resilient solutions by 2030. Uh, and there you'll find uh, there, our work spans beyond just the, the, the health-based warning systems. We have a heat action platform that talks about 
how cities and people can uh, uh, understand the vulnerabilities, uh, where they, uh, uh, what they can do, uh, both on policy and also individual actions. Uh, real understanding of, of the different ways you can implement solutions, both technical and, and otherwise, and, and how to evaluate whether they've done what they were supposed to do. Uh, so OneBillionResilient.org is a great way to find us and what we're up to. Well, just, just an amazing discussion, an important and timely discussion. And hopefully for those of you that have been consistent listeners to Weather Geeks, um, you see that we've ramped up our coverage of heat here on the podcast because it's, it's important. You know, the hurricanes and tornadoes are telegenic and they're sort of more in your face, but we know we have a big problem now and going forward with heat. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Dr. Shepard, it was a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, and it's it's just, you know, you all stay safe out there. At, uh, we're still in the midst of the summer. Uh, hurricane season's ramping up, so uh, extreme weather hazards abound, and it's important that we cover and be prepared for all of them, not just the ones that often get covered on TV and in the media. So, again, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you for joining us on Weather Geeks. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.